Hey guys, and welcome to Hunting Land, presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. If you'd like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is a podcast for you. This week's show is brought to you by Bucks Island Marine. At Bucks Island, you can check out the full list of inventory from new and used bass, pontoon, and bow rider style boats. New and used motors as well as kayaks for sale. They love trade-ins, which provides a steady stream of used boats. They can rig your boat at their 18-bay service department or ship your new motor anywhere in the United States. They provide boat service on all kinds of boats, even if they weren't purchased from Bucks. They have factory trained and certified technicians. You can visit them at 4500 Highway 77 in Southside, Alabama, or give them a call at 256-442-2588. All right, I'm your host, Joe Bayer, here with my co-host, Clint Flowers. And Clint, this week, are we? what are we talking about this week? Is it just how terrible of a turkey hunter you're figuring out that you really are? Yeah, I mean, or how good of a turkey scare I am. Can I take your pick? <laughs> Man, it's been tough. Those birds are hinned up. That's a uh, that's a whole different strategy for hunting, and one I'm not very good at, to be blunt. I'm good when they're by themselves. I like to think so anyway, but they get hinned up. I kind of lose my lose my train of thought with the turkeys, but sounds like you've been having at least good success in, in having birds on your place. Yeah, I've enjoyed chasing them, but I'm just I'm ready to close the deal. Yeah. Well, what about the land market, man? I mean, turkey hunting was in full swing and a lot of times we start to see things kind of slow down in middle of April school and summertime activities start ramping up. I think, uh, you know, do you see anything that looks like we're going to trend that way or you think we're going to have just a, another busy spring and early summer? No, luckily closing deals in the land market has not been a problem lately. We've been wide open and, and uh, really across the board nationwide it's been tough to keep up with and you know we're appreciative of all the opportunities we've got we're just trying to keep up with the momentum yeah absolutely and find land to list for sale because that's been the biggest thing biggest challenge is finding that inventory and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that today and what those trends are across the nation not just in our area but what's going on with the rest of the country when it comes to price per acre trends and speed of sales. And, you know, if there's any areas of the country that are maybe bucking those trends, a little bit later on from there, we're going to be discussing really how to figure out what your land is worth. We talk a lot about it depends on here. We're going to get a little bit more into detail as to how you actually come up with a value for your property. And to do that this week, we've got Jason Burbage. He's the president of National Land Realty joining us again. Jason, welcome back. Thanks. Good to be back. Yeah, man. So, I mean, starting things off, you know, I think you heard Clint and I talking, things are good in the land market right now. What are you seeing within our sales across the country? Uh, You know, are, are we seeing an increase in price per acre? Are we seeing, you know, an increase in or a decrease in time on the market? What's going on outside of Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia? Yeah, it's a a continuance of what of what we're seeing in in those states you just mentioned. And you guys really already have given the reason why we've got low inventory and high demand. And as a result of that, from a value standpoint, it, it causes the property values to increase. So, there's really nowhere in the country that's experiencing any kind of major negative trend in any way. Everything's looking very positive right now. And we're obviously very thankful for that. Let's talk a little bit about that demand. What are the different factors? Because, I mean, we've talked about it a good bit on here, some of the factors in our area, but there's different factors in different parts of the country as well. So what are you seeing as some of the across the country factors that are affect, that's affecting this demand in a positive way? 
the really interesting thing that's happening right now is in the farm belt. And it really started back in the fall. And there's been a, a lot happening in that area. And that I started getting reports from our from our team that, that spread across the farm belt that things were really, really, really picking up as compared to where they were earlier in 2020. And the driving factor of that, the main primary factor for that, and, and uh, according to most experts, is the correlation of the, uh, the grains market being very strong right now. China has a lot to do with that. China's back in the game with us again. They're buying a lot of stuff from us. What changes that, how those markets fluctuate over the years is, is supply and demand. Previously, we had been having, the United States had been basically creating bumper crops of rains and you had an oversupply and that impacted in a negative way the commodities. So, you know, the long and short of it is, is that when farmers are doing really well, compare that with, or you add to that interest rates still being extremely good for borrowing money and then some of the federal stimulus that, that has come out because of because of COVID just put them in a good situation to be able to, to buy more land. And that's that's driving it when it's when you look at it. We talked about last week interest rates being a little bit higher than they've been, but still historically very, very, very low. When you think about being able to get 30 year money on raw land in the in the four percent interest range, it's still historically very, very low. And so that's definitely driving. But I want to go back to what you're talking about with the grain markets. And you mentioned that this happened back, started, kind of started back in the fall with China getting back in the game. Are they getting back in the game due to COVID or is it federal administration changes? What's driving them to want to trade again? It primarily had the Trump administration going to work to make it attractive for China to do business with us. That's the simplest way of explaining it. Yeah. And that's what's got them back in the game. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so we talked about that, that farm belt really kind of showing out and those trends across the nation. We're seeing the higher price per acre, interest rates driving some of that. I know down here, you know, in Northwest Florida and Southeast Alabama in the markets I'm most familiar with, what I see is a big demand too for these smaller acreage home sites, more rural home sites, uh, or with existing homes in place. There's a lot of people that, especially Florida, you know, we've seen a lot of migration from people out of states like California and New York coming down to Florida to get away from a lot of the lockdown restrictions. You know, the administration in Florida has been much more business friendly. And so we've seen a lot of demand for, for that. And and for people trying to get out of more metropolitan urban areas and get a little bit more rural. Are you seeing that across the country as well? That, that maybe 40 acres or less market being a, a shining star like it is here in Florida? Yeah, it absolutely is. If you've got a population area, so, you know, city metropolitan area where, where you've got a lot of suburbs and that kind of stuff around it, those areas are where you're seeing what you described happen. And that's happening all around the country. And that is directly associated, in my opinion, with results of coronavirus and people having that desire to get some space around them. And then you combine that again with interest rates being where they are. And it's just a, it's a perfect situation. We talked about this previously last year, but it's just funny because this morning I was with a friend of mine and he just bought a, a new to him Jeep, a used Jeep. 
that it took him forever to find what he wanted because everybody's buying Jeeps right now, just like they're buying pickup trucks and they're buying side-by-sides and they're buying boats, which, it, I mean, those are all things for doing stuff outdoors. So the, there is just a, a, a massive, massive interest in the outdoors right now. And all of the industry that's tied, tied to that are seeing benefits of it. Yeah, seeing the same things in the fishing industry, like you say, everything related to the hunting industry, whether that, you know, be land or equipment or any of those ancillary products for services, just through the roof has definitely been a benefit. You know, talking about those smaller acreage tracks, I think that's another thing that I've been seeing a lot of, and it's something that landowners are needing to keep in mind right now. With that being a really hot market, it's a really good time and there's really good opportunity if your property is set up well for it to consider doing a division. Uh, We talked about that a few episodes ago with Kaylin Campbell and really how to divide a property. Because I mean, I know in, in a lot of the land that I've sold in the past 12 months, we're seeing I mean, literally almost a hundred percent increase in a lot of cases in the price per acre of that land whenever we divide it down and get it into a lower price point. Thinking about that price point for a minute, do you see that there is a maybe an across the nation trend where buyers, when they're looking at land, say, you know, less than a certain dollar amount, that they kind of switch their mindset from this price per acre mindset to a, uh, well, look at all I'm getting for that compared to, say, a residential lot in a neighborhood? The only time I, I've ever really seen that come into play is really for much smaller lot size properties. You know, maybe if you get under five acres where it's more about the gross price of the property than it is the specific price per acre. But even with that, that it, it's still a factor when people are making their, when, when they're valuing the property. And it's no different from, from a house. That's typically something that people factor in as well as the price per square foot, the cost per square foot when they're determining what they want to spend for something. Not so much what they want to spend, but when they're trying to determine whether it's a good price or not on it, they're looking at what other houses are selling for on a price per square foot basis. So it's the correlation is, is the same when it, when it comes to price per acre. The times where that's not as much as a factor, and, and Clint can certainly comment to this because he he handles so many sales of this size. When you get into the, these much larger properties that have a lot of improvements to them or come with you know, equipment packages and all that kind of stuff included in it, then maybe not as much because it's not, it's, quite frankly, it's just not as simple to, to look at the value of the property solely based on price per acre. And I think that that really ties in well with what's going to be the meat of today's show, which is determining what your land is worth and that's a whole and it well you know to start things off i think we talked about that in the show where we talked about dividing land which is land's worth what somebody's willing to pay for it and depending on where that is and what it's made up of it's going to change i mean for example i was looking at a property yesterday and it was it was 10 acres with road frontage but this 10 acres gave a neighboring landowner access to that road that he did not have. He was having to come in and go through a bunch of different properties to get to his property. 
real roundabout way that, you know, having to haul timber, this would give him a direct highway access. So for that neighbor, that 10 acres is going to be worth a lot more than it is to the buyer out there in the market, because, you know, he's looking at it saying, well, how much value does this 10 acres add to the 150 I've got behind it? And those kind of mental gymnastics, I think, is where a land professional is so key in being able to come out, look at your property. I mean, if somebody's not looking at your property, number one, putting boots on the ground, you need to take everything they say with a grain of salt, in my opinion. But how do you go about dividing up that property and the different components of value to come up with an actual value and then also a market value? So, Clint, I want you to kind of take it away from here because you've got a lot of experience, obviously, in appraising properties and Talk a little bit about the differences between, say, the replacement value approach and the sales comparison approach when we're putting together a price opinion on a property. Well, and that some of that's changed recently, or, or should be changing from because of the lumber prices. And uh, so putting on both replacement cost and sales comparable approach, now you almost have to add some kind of a graduation to the comparable approach now because of you know how much more it costs to build something now than it did two, three years ago. And the trend in our business, and you know, I was an appraiser for seven years as well as a broker before the brokerage outgrew it. And I had to pick my favorite. I still take that approach to everything when valuing a property. But in our industry as a whole, the comparable sales approach is more commonly used and it's more commonly applicable, especially on, on unimproved tracks. But when you've got a track with a lot of stick built improvements, what I typically do is try to analyze both and see how they line up. And then whether we're talking about game fencing or barns or lodges, you know, see what it would cost to rebuild that and then see what the comps are telling me as well, if you've got them and then try to find some sort of common ground in that, not just throw some depreciation schedule on it and assume it's right because really the market's going to tell us what it wants to bear and then really just see if we can find some common ground there. More times than not, what you'll find is, you know, you're on a stick built improvement. If it costs you $200 a square foot to build a lodge, but most of the comps are showing $85 or $90 a square foot, if it's a nicer building with higher end finishes, you're going to land in that 100 to 125, 135 a foot range right now because of the cost of lumber and things like that. In certain areas, if you're closer to cities and you're in your marketing to areas that have a higher amount of capital where they're seeing higher per square foot prices for condos and homes and things in their market, then coming in and paying a higher rate per foot, you know, at 150 range or sometimes closer to what you got in it or higher is possible too, compared to just selling to a more local rural market who only wants to pay the depreciated value. And really what that comes down to is working with the right broker and making sure that they're marketing across a large enough demographic to capture those people. Uh, and that's where you'll see the biggest return. I hope that wasn't too confusing, but that's the logic that I try to take on on properties like that is, is really just trying to align the two as best we can and then get maximum exposure. All right, Clint. So uh, for everybody else in the room, how about you rein that in a little bit and let's talk about, you know, some of the specific components. Tell me just like if you're looking at a property, just give me the you know one that sticks out recently and you say, hey, you know, here's what I got here. How do you really just break it down? Just break it down for me piece by piece and what you do when you're pulling together that value. So I try to look at every piece of property like a puzzle 
And if it, you take those pieces and you pull them apart, you put a value on each piece and you bring them back together for a total. So if you've got a lodge, you've got fencing, you've got a lake, you've got timber, those are each a piece. And so I go into a property, let's say that it has a lodge and we've got a square foot total on that. Based on the level of finishes, we're using a price range for that. Based on the timber, uh, if we've got that timber cruise day or something like that, even better, we'll use something that precise. If not, we may have to use our opinion or Forrester's opinion on that value. We're going to be pretty close on accurate on the median dirt value ranges. So we'll use that based on the site quality and location. If utilities are established, that will carry some premium on the dirt. And then typically that's about all we'll see there, you know, on lake values. I know the general swing on those. And then so depending on the size, structure, stocking, things like that, we'll use the range. And so we'll put the values on those different pieces and then bring them back together for a total. One of the things that's been interesting here recently, uh, because the market has been so good, is that a lot of times the value, the replacement value that we're talking about, you know, you're taking that approach of every individual component, putting a value on it, adding them back up and coming to a, a number. That number's lower than the comps in a lot of cases. And so, Jason, why don't you talk a little bit about when you've got a landowner that you're working with and you, you put together your BPO and you say, look, I feel really comfortable that this is what this property is going to sell for. And they say, well, my number is this and it's higher than that number. What's the approach? How do you still get that property sold? That's a great question because that happens quite often. And you, you never want to completely disregard, as, as a land professional, you never want to just disregard what the landowner's number might be. And to start off with, I want to understand the landowner's reasoning for that. There could be something that maybe I missed that I didn't know as well. So first and foremost, you, you want to get clarification on that. But when that's all said and done, if there's still a difference, if I'm still lower than what the landowner wants to get for it, depending on where it's at, if it's within reason, within reason, meaning if we're hundreds of thousands of dollars apart, you know, 20, 30% apart, that's a pretty wide gap. But if we're within reason and closer together, then in many cases, you know, what I would simply ask of the landowner is, is let's let the market tell us if we're, if we're right or not. I mean, ultimately the market is going to tell us that we know. And whether it's an appraiser or a real estate professional doing a BPO, you've got data that you're putting into these documents, but realistically that data is old with every day that goes by, especially in a market like this, it's constantly changing. So you could spend a week or two weeks putting a report together. And by the time you're done with it, there's new, there's something new that, that changes things or and impacts where that valuation might be. So my policy was always you know, if, if we were if we were apart in price, I would simply say, well, let's let's let the market tell us where we're at. If I agree to go ahead and list your and, and work with you and list this property at your number, uh, my expectation in return is that after a period of time, when we've got some good data to analyze after having the property on the market, that we pay attention to that and we make wise adjustments to the asking price if needed based on that information that we're getting back. And most people who, who truly want to sell their property are receptive to that. That's, that sounds good to them. 
because it, for, for us, like a national land realty, when we list property, we stay in communication with our clients and we are providing them with good, useful information beyond, hey, we, we, you know, we showed the property and this is what the person said about it. That, that feedback's important. I mean, we need to hear from the buyers that are looking at these tracks, these properties, you know, positive and negative things so that we can determine whether or not we need to make any adjustments. But then also the analytical aspect of it is our ability to take the data that, that tells us where people are who are looking at the property online, how many looks the property is getting virtually, uh, especially this incredibly valuable information if you're not getting any showings. Because if you're not getting any showings, the natural inclination is to think, well, we're overpriced. And that could, in many cases, that, that's true. But we want to be able to ensure that that's the case before we make that decision to drop that price. And it not just be, well, we're high, so let's drop it and see what happens. So by doing that, we're showing to our clients that this is not just some kind of a game for us, that there's a lot that goes into this to ensure that that the best decisions are made on their behalf when it's all said and done. I think what you said too about really paying attention to here's how many people have seen it and here's how many times they've reached out. If you've got a lot of people seeing it and right now in this market, just about every type of land, there's lots of people looking and seeing it. If you're not getting inquiries and you're not showing the property, it's a really good indicator that it's probably a price issue, you know, unless there's something about the property that is bad in the listing, you know, I mean, we, you know, go out there and take upside down pictures or something. I don't know, but for the most part, it's going to be a price issue. And that's just really important to consider. But the other thing right now is that those comparable sales, well, there's literally a higher comparable sale being made every single day. So right now it's important to be looking at it and saying, well, look, here's what the comps are. Depending on your motivations, if you're looking to get this thing sold tomorrow, we're pretty confident that this is the range it's going to happen in. If you're looking to get top dollar and you're not in a big rush to sell it, you know, you don't have something that you need the money for, you're just looking to get top dollar, go ahead and price it a little higher than the market. Let's see where the market is. But that all gets back to what is the, what's really there too. And, and Clint, I think one of the things that you and I talk a lot about is, you know, it's, it's common online to see these filters that everybody's putting in you know, I'm looking for land that's 100 acres or more or 100 acres to 300 acres or this price per acre, or it's got to have a pond or all these different filters. But, and so a lot of times people aren't seeing properties that would work for what they want because of that filter. Talk a little bit about the importance of articulating that value that you're talking about when you've got a property that is priced above the median price per acre, but it's worth it. We get into this conversation a lot because people base their immediate opinion is based off of the price per unit or the total price. In this case, typically price per acre. So there's many times where, say, a, a $4,000 an acre track may be a better deal than a $1,500 an acre track. You know, if the larger price track has more timber with so much timber per acre, for example, that the dirt price is much lower than the $1,500 per acre track, then it's the better buy because you can manipulate that timber, you can harvest it, borrow against it, whatever you need to do, and still have a lower basis in the land. And in those examples, or if you've got a track that's got a lot of improvements, being able to 
elaborate on that and show people the value in that through both your media work, pictures, your video, but also quantify that through timber volumes. If it's a timber example, per square foot detail plans, whatever you've got just to show people why it's worth it and and really get them to dig in and read and gather that detail that you provided to them and not just base their opinion of the property immediately upon the, the price per acre. Uh, you don't want to get that price prejudice or that you know geographical prejudice, things like that, just because of your price. So you, you want to be able to capture them, bring them in, and let them learn more about the property and understand why that value is there. I think one of the biggest obstacles to being able to articulate that value, like we're talking about, is not being able to have a conversation with a potential buyer. And that really stems from and is a risk to listing the property too high. Because I hear this a lot with landowners. They say, well, let's just put it out there, but I'll negotiate. And the reality is that those buyers that are in the market, they, most of them, now every once in a while you get, you get the person who bucks this trend, but most people don't want to offend someone with what they would deem a low ball offer. Even though it may be an accurate offer, it's considered low ball compared to the price. So Jason, talk a little bit about the risks of not having an accurate value, and that could be undervalued or overvalued. But first, talk about being overvalued and what risks the landowner is taking by doing that. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great, great topic of discussion because this is applicable across real estate, not just in land. But it happens in my 20 plus years of doing this and selling enough houses to know what that's like and being involved in commercial and the majority of my business being being in this in the land business. The danger that you have when you you go with it with the attitude of let's just put a put this price on it and see what happens. I'm willing to negotiate. Somebody will come along, you know, that sort of thing is that terminology that people use is that property listings get stale. The reason for that is that when a property is, is on the market, it's on the market for a while. And nowadays, with most of these websites that are out there, like for instance, Zillow, as an example, many of the land websites track this too. You can see how long the property's been on the market when you're looking. And so if the market's a strong market and things are selling are typically going under contract within, let's say, 30 days, and you've got a property that's been sitting on the market for 180 days, then if you're looking at this property, you're naturally thinking there's something wrong with this place, even though there may not be anything wrong with it, other than the fact that it's priced too high. But because of that, you're automatically putting this property in a different bucket than you would other things. And it may also keep you from getting really excited about it, where if you have it priced right and you're creating more energy around it and you get people excited and in a strong market, you get multiple people interested in it. That's a win-win situation for a seller. So it's very, it's it's a it's an intricate dance that, that you play when you do this. There's a fear that that drives all of this with, with anybody who's selling anything. And that fear is of missing out on that potential buyer who's going to pay the best deal possible for it. So it's the fear of loss. And as human beings, that Fear, unfortunately, influences more decisions that, that we make than we don't make. And, and so it's that fear of going, well, if I price it too low, I might not make what I could have made. 
And what our attitude about this is, is that, you know, again, going back to let's not overprice it and run into the, the danger of this thing sitting out here for a long period of time and getting stale. Let's price it where we think we're going to get a lot of eyes on it so that we can start really analyzing whether or not we've got it right. And the other thing, and, and I'll let Clint speak to this as well, that, that a lot of times people don't take into consideration is what's the cost, what's the true cost that you're dealing with by having a property sitting on the market for a long period of time? The time value of money that, that you're losing potentially by hoping to get this big number, what's that really costing you? And I know Clint's got thoughts on this. So I'll pass it off to him and let him kind of add in on that. Well, I think the biggest risk of time right now is just that the you know political winds are shifting as far as what it's going to cost to sell real estate in 2022. You know, are we going to have higher capital gains or no capital gains rates or no 1031s or things like that that could, if you've got a capital gain on your real estate sale, you know, right now you've got a ceiling of 20%. Uh, next year, that ceiling could be well into the 40s and without a floor. It may only be the 40s if you're in that tax bracket. Um, there may be estate consequences, things like that. From a general perspective, you know, assuming those things don't change, if you're going liquid out of a property and you're going to go back into equities and, and things like that into the stock market, I did this for a landowner last month who's planning on doing that. They're selling their property and splitting up the cash between uh, the different owners. You know, they were wanting to hold out for another six, eight months for us to get another two or three percent on the price. And I went in and, and took just the normal index fund returns from Vanguard for the last year to date, and it was 47%. That wasn't even the highest. That was just the average. So if they'd have taken that money, an offer that we had a year ago that was within very close margins of where we were today, sold it, put that in the market, they'd have made a 47% return on their money in the last 12 months. And instead, we've been waiting to get that extra 1% or 2% that we're hoping we can get from another buyer. You know, So you, you've got to be realistic in things and understand what time can cost you. And sometimes it makes sense to wait if there's something coming, you know, if there's development, there's a new mill opening, there's things happening in your area that make it worthwhile to wait. But if there's not, and it's unlikely to change and there's more risk in doing that, then you need to be realistic and, and consider going ahead and selling and, and moving that those funds into something more productive that can make up any perceived shortfall quickly. That's so key. And I think that's one thing that everybody, and that's not just a real estate problem. This is business owners do it. People don't account for the cost of their capital when they're factoring in their return on investment. But one of the things, you know, you're talking about this time on the market being a risk and Jason, you, you hit on how being on the market too long can develop that stigma. Clint, you talked about how being on the market too long is a opportunity cost for what you could be doing and how you could be deploying that money elsewhere. But the other thing that we didn't talk about really, you hit on it a little bit, Clint, is that trees don't grow to the sky. So we're in a good market right now. Hopefully this goes, I don't you know, maybe 30 more years and I'll be in the business. So uh, I'd like for it to continue on that amount of time. But at some point, something's going to change in Maybe it's income tax rates and there's less buyers in the market. Maybe everybody's got their COVID vaccine and they go back to not really thinking about rural land as much. Who knows what's going to happen? And that's the thing is the uncertainty of, of the future. Talk a little bit, either of you guys, about what it's been like to sell properties in a declining economic 
period in a contraction, a recession, where you've listed a property in good times and then entered into bad times and maybe some of the threats that occur during those periods? I can kick that off. We started National Land Realty in 2007. So our timing was perfect for, <laughs> for, for uh, you're right at the tail end of, you know, just a, a crazy, you know, good market. And then, of course, tailing right into the Great Recession. And so I can share from a perspective of that mindset of, man, this is things are so great and you just expect it's going to continue. And then reality smacking you square in the face with a two by four and you realizing that, hey, you know, things are, are changing. They've changed pretty drastically. And I can remember getting just from, from a professional standpoint, getting a listing was, was not difficult to do, meaning that there were plenty of people who were interested in selling their property. And it used to be like now, for most cases, when a property hits the market, there's a lot of excitement. There's excitement with the seller, there's excitement with the real estate professional that's helping them. There's excitement with buyers because there's something new's come on the market. And back then it was like, well, here's another one. And you had to be, there was a, there was a lot of work that went into selling property and getting them sold at a, at a fair price within a reasonable amount of time. You know, look, there's a reason why in our business, our listing agreements are typically for a year. Because normally it can take that long to sell a property in an, in an average market. In a subpar market, it can take longer than that. You know, it's, it's, you learn a lot about how important the things that you do impact your clients and your ability to get property sold. It's just one of those things where the, the people who are experts at doing this, this is where they really do the most for their clients in, in hard markets. So, you know, when it's, when you're when you're in a market that changes, especially if you're you're early on and you're, and you're shifting, it's not something I can remember where we may we, we may have had property that was selling for four thousand an acre and then it kind of eased down to three and then it went down from that. It wasn't like overnight where it just went from this price to just this rock bottom price. It kind of trended down some. It took a little bit of time, but then it stayed down during the recession in the Carolinas, which is where I was focused on. Um, 2008 is when things, when things really changed. It wasn't until the fourth quarter of 2011 that we saw that I felt really good about things were on, on the up. And then, you know, here we are today. I think too, one of the things is the buyer's mindset changes a lot where yes. when, when you know, I mean, just as a buyer thinking as a buyer, when I'm not worried about a property selling quickly, then I'm much more confident to try to negotiate a lower price. I'm not really worried necessarily about even if I miss out on that opportunity, because in those environments, you as a buyer feel like, well, there's going to be another opportunity pop up immediately. Whereas right now, if you're wanting to buy right now, you better act. I mean, if you see something that fits your criteria, you better act. And I think it makes negotiation a lot harder on the seller in those environments. The last thing I'll say on that is that, it, yes, it does. But it's all about expectation when it's all said and done. You know, what's your expectation as the seller? And my whole thing was that, sure, in a down market, you've got people out there trying to lowball stuff and that sort of thing. But there are also people out there who are willing to pay, pay a fair price. It's not always about, 
I got to get the best deal possible and, and that sort of thing. I, I, when I was actively selling, it was rare that I felt like I was, you know, a win-lose deal. I mean, I was on the winning side and my client was on the winning side and somebody else got just hammered. I mean, what good is that when it's all said and done? So our whole thing is about win-win. We want everybody to feel good about the deal if we can make that happen. Good markets, bad markets, whatever. So if that's the approach that you take with it, then yes, it may take a little bit longer to put deals together. And yes, buyers are not, you know, they have a little bit more the ability to be able to not rush into things and they kind of say, well, this isn't exactly what I want. I'll just wait for something else to come along. But on the flip side with that, with buyers, if you're a buyer and you're in a down market, and you're like, well, I'll wait for the next thing to come along. You can be doing that. You can be kicking that can down the road for a long time. You know, the same thing applies to the time value money because things change and it goes back to what do you what what is what is your objective with this when it's all said and done it's what is, what is it costing you by waiting for that right deal to come along so that's again if you've got a if you've got a professional that's working with you and advising you as a seller or as a buyer that's part of our responsibility is to serve as a reminder you know kind of hold you accountable so to speak in a, in a positive way to that to ensure that you know you're focusing on what's most important when it's all said and done what, what your priorities are there what i've noticed in those good markets versus bad markets so to speak is it's not that there's a real like jason was saying you, you know we're your sellers become buyers and buyers become sellers and we, we deal with both ends of this and these relationships over our career and it's it's not it doesn't have to be this adversarial combative thing and it's typically not so what happens in these good markets is and the reason things move faster is the value is more apparent to the buyer's market because things are going great and moving fast and they see that it's easier for them to understand. So they move faster. If you're in a recession where things are more volatile everywhere, then it can be tougher to see that value or to understand it without seeing an equal or greater amount of risk because of what's going, what else is going on in the world or in the economy. So it's just about being able to convey that properly, to explain that properly for both sides to see pros and the cons of that investment and understand it because each comes with a return and each comes with a risk on each side, you know, because the seller leaving that investment may not find something as good. And likewise, you know, things can happen in a market where the value of that land may go down temporarily. But as we've seen historical trends, land values really don't go down. So it's just about really understanding that, being able to, to communicate that, you know, with everyone involved. And then, you know, long-term returns in land are, are extremely strong and it's just a matter of timing it right. One of the things I've heard a lot here recently from buyers is, you know, well, I'm, I'm going to wait, you know, I'm going to wait. Things seem like it's a little too fast paced for me. I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I'm just going to hold out and they kind of even and a lot of them uh, have stopped looking. And one of the things I've noticed, even though we're in this really great environment for sellers to put their property on the market, and a lot of buyers then think that means that, well, this isn't a good time to buy. In reality, there's a lot of properties hitting the market that haven't seen the market in a long time because the seller knows what they have. And they've just been waiting for the right time. It hasn't been the right time for them to sell. So, I mean, there's an area I keep a close eye on. It's got some nostalgia for me and properties just don't turn over in that area very often. I'm going to look at a property this Saturday that fits those criteria. And that's that's just a big thing to understand is that, like you said, Jason, there's a win-win here always. And it's never necessarily the wrong or the right time to buy or to sell. It's just 
the time that it is, and you've got to make the decision, like you said, based on your goals, what your objective is, same thing on the buyer side. And where that all comes back down to is where we started the show, which is if you're thinking about selling your property, or if you're thinking about buying a property, it's very important that you're talking to someone who understands all the components of value when it comes to land really knows, like we always say on here, what is my land worth? And it's so much harder with land than it is with, you know, if, if we go step off into a neighborhood and we just say, look, houses in this neighborhood sell for $200 a square foot. This house is 2000 square feet. We're going to list it for $400,000. You know, we didn't go in and say, well, the plumbing is worth this much and the electrical is worth this much and the roof is worth that much. And what that, but that is what you're having to do when you look at a piece of land, you're having to say, here's how much it costs to run these utilities. Here's how much it would cost for you to replace that cabin right now with lumber prices where they are. If you're not talking to somebody in a local market who understands what fencing costs, what, what pine trees are worth, what hardwoods are worth, and can get those answers for you, you need to keep looking and you need to keep searching because there are people who know all those different components. So, I was having a conversation with one of our brokers yesterday and he, he shared a really interesting story with me. I, this really just kind of exemplifies how challenging it, it, it really is to value properties and just highlights the aspect of ultimately it's, it comes down to what someone's willing to pay, what somebody's willing to, to take, to accept when, when, it, when it comes to, to selling a track of land. So in this situation, our brokers got a multi-million dollar property listed and there's an entity that owns it. It's not a, an individual. And they have certain stipulations that have to take place in order to sell the property. One being that they have to have an appraisal done uh, to sign off on the sale price, basically. Well, the buyer who's put the property under contract, it's the same circumstance. It's an entity and they require an appraisal to determine what they're going to pay for the property. They've already decided that they want the property. Now it boils down to, we've got to get an appraisal done to basically allow us to sign off on moving forward with the purchase of it. What's unique about this is you really have a scenario where the seller has to do it and the buyer has to do it. So basically they're going to have two different appraisers appraise this property. And hopefully those appraisals come in the same or pretty close together and everybody's happy and they move forward with it. But more than likely what's going to happen is they're going to be different. And that's because, you know, appraisers are human beings as well, and they use facts to determine appraisals, but they, there may be different factors that they use to come up with numbers. And I mean, as long as I've been doing this, and Clint already talked about being an appraiser, you can have a commercial building, a house, a track of land, and you can have three different appraisers appraise it. And with the house, they probably will all be fairly close together. The commercial building, especially the track of land, there's a good chance that they're not going to be close together. And so when it's all said and done, what happens? What happens if those appraisals are different? And the seller says, well, we have to, we can only sell if the appraisal supports the, the contract price. And the buyer says, well, we can only sell if the appraisal, if we can only buy if the appraisal supports the contract price, or we will only buy based on what the appraiser uh, appraises the property for. Then what do you do? You introduce the buyer to the other guy's appraiser. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that obviously that 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 would be that would make it a lot easier. But at the end of the day, the broker 
is going to play an integral role in all of this. And his job is going to be to focus on coming to a win-win scenario for both parties in which they determine what will work and make everybody satisfy everybody, whether it's because of the, you know, the bylaws that are in place that the, the entities have or, or whatever else it may be. So when it's all said and done, this property will either sell or it won't sell based upon what the buyer and seller decide, which leads back to the market will determine when it's all said and done, what the purchase price is going to be for the property. And I just, I share that it just highlights the complexity that goes into these types of transactions and the importance of, again, of having uh, knowledgeable professionals uh, involved in these things, uh, experts uh, involved in these things so that um, you're getting things done in a timely manner because the longer it takes to get these deals done, the percentage of the deal actually happening drops and the, the good things that come out of it drop as well. So our goal is always to get these things done as quickly as possible um, so that everybody comes out winning in the end. Well, Jason, if somebody's ready to make a move and they're looking for that local guy, that local land professional that's near them, y'all have done a great job with the new website redesign to make it really easy for people to find what they're looking for. So tell everybody how to get to that local professional. Yeah, I appreciate that. We've got men and women around the country that, that are, they're experts in what they do. And quite simply in order to find somebody in your area, all you need to do is go to nationalland.com. And then in the upper left-hand corner of the screen, there's a, a tab that says find a uh, agent. And from there, you can go click on the state that you're looking in and you'll get a list of all of our professionals there. You'll be able to see how many listings they currently have, get their bias, get their information. The other thing that you can do as well is if you hover over the buy button that's on that's at the top of the screen, you can actually search for land near you automatically. When you click on that, it'll just bring up everything that's for sale where you are physically with your device or computer, uh, which is kind of a quick and easy way just to get a good feel for, you know, what kind of presence we've got in your area. Uh, in some areas, we've got a lot of people. In some areas, we don't have as many. And um, so we want you to feel good about, you know, the professionals that we've got out there. So it's worth taking a look at. Well, Jason, it's always a pleasure having you on, talking about what's going on uh, with land around the country, as long as that information is good. So far, you haven't disappointed us. So uh, next time we have you back, <laughs> just make sure you bring good information, no dark clouds. And uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again soon, buddy. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. All right, guys, that wraps up another great segment. Y'all take a minute to check out some of the businesses that keep this show free for you each week. At Farm Credit of Northwest Florida, they believe you deserve the opportunity to pursue your dreams to grow, whether that is through building a homestead, a rural retreat, or building an agricultural enterprise. Choosing your lender and applying for a loan can seem overwhelming, but for over 100 years, they've helped people just like you eliminate the unexpected and secure financing. They do it by helping you explore your options so you can apply with confidence and get started living your dream in the country. Check them out online at www.gorural.net or give them a call at 855-GO-RURAL. 
Well, folks, that is going to wrap it up this week. And we want to make it easy for you guys to listen as soon as our new shows are ready. So here's a handy option for you. To get the podcast emailed to you, all you have to do is text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. Again, the word hunting, that's with a G. And I know I know some of you Alabama guys were like, hunting? Like, no G? No, it's with a G to 773-770-4377 to join our email list. And as always, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really helps us keep the show going. Hope you guys stay safe out there. We will talk to you next week. This week's Hunt and Land podcast has been brought to you by Brush Clearing Services. If you've been considering forestry mulching, don't forget, there is no substitute for horsepower. Brush Clearing Services provides high-output, high-production forestry mulchers from three to 600 horsepower. Smaller skid steer mulcher runtime rates may be lower, but BCS production will be two to three times more than these smaller machines. BCS prides itself on providing dependable equipment to ensure project completion is on time and under budget. Check out their full line of property and land services at brushclearingservices.com or call them at 706-718-1690. And also, SunSouth. From outdoor equipment, parts, service, accessories, SunSouth has you covered. Own the best for less. Visit SunSouth or sunsouth.com for quality John Deere equipment. SunSouth, for those that do. And also brought to you by Bucks Island Marine. They have new pontoon boats, bass boats, bow riders, and aluminum boats for sale. They provide boat service on all kinds of boats, even if they weren't purchased from Bucks. You can visit them at 4500 Highway 77 in Southside, Alabama, or give them a call at 256-442-2588. And also Farm Credit of Northwest Florida. For over 100 years, they've helped people just like you explore your options so you can apply with confidence and get started living your dream in the country. Check them out at GoRural.net or give them a call at 855-GO-RURAL. This week's show has been brought to you by Joe Baya and Clint Flowers, members of the top producing team at National Land Realty, fastest growing and most innovative land brokerage in the nation. Bottom line, we know land and now is a great time to buy or sell. Want to know why? Shoot us an email at pros at landhunting.com or call us at 855-NLR-LAND. And also brought to you by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. Great Days Outdoors Magazine guides you on hunting and fishing south of the Mason-Dixon. Become a better southern hunter and angler and pick up your copy today wherever fine magazines are sold or save online at greatdaysoutdoors.com.